Our scripture is from Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts a new wine, or excuse me, puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Hey, well, if you, uh, if, if I was to kind of separate this room right now just into two different groups, if I was to kind of put one group on one side, another group on another side, um, and I could probably break you guys down into a group that is a bit more of creatures of habit and also those who enjoy and love change uh, a lot. So just like, I just want to see you kind of self-identify just for a minute. How many of you guys are creatures of habit people, like to kind of do the same things? How many of you guys like to change it up occasionally? Okay, a little bit less in second group. So, so yeah, there are those of you who like to do things the same way. You wake up at the same time. You like to drink the same coffee every morning. You like to take the same way to work every day. And in fact, actually annoys you when there's something that kind of gets in the way of that because you're like, I was planning on doing this and now I can't anymore. Um, and, and so you like to keep your house the same way. Maybe you have the same decoration up from the 80s or maybe you have the same kind of look that it's always kind of been that way. Um, and, and, and so that's some of you. Some of you guys are, uh, I I'd, I'd probably put myself in the second category where I like to change it up. I like to experience new things. I like to go to new restaurants. I like to meet new people. I like to uh, take a, a scenic route sometimes home from, from work or whatever. And so there are, are things like uh, for people who enjoy change that uh, simply – they don't like things the same way, right? For, for those of you who maybe like change, the pandemic was kind of interesting, right? It was like, oh, this is – you know not to be inappropriate about everybody who suffered from that, but an element of staying at home and kind of work being different – was that, oh, this is different. Like, I get to, you know, work uh, via Zoom or, or be on Slack more often, or all these things were kind of different during that time of the pandemic. And so there, there's an element of, uh, I want to make the case in, in some ways that those of you who are more geared towards change, I think you're maybe a little bit more easily able to swallow the understanding of a kind of spiritual change in a way, because to be a Christian, as you know, to be a Christian is all about change. There's, there's multiple layers of, of change that happens to us, and uh, the first thing that happens to us is immediate, right, in regards to our salvation. It happens in a moment where, where what changes is because of the work of Christ on the cross, because of his work for our righteousness, God's view of us changes in that moment. And so as, as God's view changes of us, we have this kind of instant moment where God doesn't see us as sinner anymore. He sees us as friend. He sees us as somebody who is, is, uh, is on his team, is righteous because of his imputed righteousness. 
And that happens in a moment. Another change that happens spiritually is much slower. It takes a long time, and it's the process of becoming more and more holy, becoming less and less carnal, becoming less and less sinful, and becoming more and more holy. And that's called sanctification. And so I, I just want to point out right off the start is that uh, to be a Christian is to understand and embrace change often. We are in the constant state of changing. We're, we're from one kind of present uh, level of, of holiness, growing and growing as we get older, hopefully, um, and maturing in our faith. And so as we look at this passage this morning, one of the things that I want you to pull from Mark 2, as you just heard Jesse read it, is that while Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, being around Jesus, it requires tremendous change from us on our, on our side. And that's something that we have to get used to that idea because if, if we think that we can just do life the same as we always have, then we're kind of in for a little bit of a headache and frustration for, for the rest of our, our days. And so this is what the crowds are experiencing. This is what the religious leaders, as we've been walking through Mark, we've seen more and more um, there's a tension that is occurring because Jesus is calling people to things. He's, he's requiring people to look at the world differently than they used to before. He's actually asking radical things of his followers. And it's hard because change is hard. Change is difficult. And the leaders, the religious leaders, the crowds are beginning to realize that Jesus is talking about a change that is coming. So the big idea this morning that I want you to uh, walk away with is that Jesus provides a new way, a shift, a change, a new way for people to know God. That's what Jesus does. He, he provides a new way for people to know God. This is the big idea that tells us how we are to engage and know and worship God in a way that is completely other and different from what we've experienced in the past. And so while change is hard for many of us, you don't like to, you know, I, I don't like it when like my, sometimes my coffee creamer is different than normal, right? There's like these small things that irritate us. But just imagine how big of a deal it is when applied to something as deeply as how we relate to God, how we relate to the Lord. And that has to change in regards to how people have been relating to God for all these years. So I've mentioned this the last few weeks, but we are um, in the section of Mark 2 and 3, where there are these five controversies that kind of come up um, over and over again as Jesus continues to kind of bump into those who are in religious power um, in, in Mark 2 and 3. And so this is, a, this is actually the third controversy um, that we've gotten to. Now, there are three questions that I want to look at in regards to this, this passage. And the first one is this. If you take notes, first question that we're going to answer is this. Number one, what causes the controversy? What is the, the root issue here that we're trying to solve and look at here? Or at least what is the trigger that gets this conversation going? So verse 18, you heard it read already. Let me read it again. Now, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, so some context here. Who is John? John is actually John the Baptist. That's who we're talking about here. So John the Baptist, their, his disciples, his followers, his, his folks, they're kind of a part of his school of thought, as well as those who are following the Pharisees. Uh, they all kind of look around and notice that they're fasting. Uh, actually, they're, they fast two days a week. And they, they do this 
a regular habit of fasting on a regular basis, and they see Jesus and his disciples, and they don't fast. And they're like, well, what's the deal with that? Like, why, why is that the case? And, and so this conversation, to answer the question of what causes the controversy, this conversation is triggered by a question about fasting. Now, let me just say right off the bat that this, I'm going to talk a lot about fasting right now, but this is actually not about fasting. So in some ways, I'm, I'm, I don't want to waste your time because um, obviously I want to get to the heart of the matter as soon as possible and make sure you understand that there's a new way to engage God. But this is, this is what kicked us off. And so it's important that we understand this because, I mean, I'm not sure how many of you guys fasted this week. Uh, probably not a lot of us. And so this is something that doesn't get talked about or engaged in very often. But while we're talking about fasting, I hope you can see underneath the surface there's actually more than the meets the eye here, okay? So for the Pharisees, this push against fasting is a tough pill to swallow because it's actually an attack on their personal piety. It's an attack on something that they feel very actually strongly about and they feel great and proud about, the fact that they fast all these days a week. And it's a bit foreign to us. Certainly, we, we know people who have fasted. Maybe some of you have fasted. I've, I've done fasts in the past. And uh, perhaps we should do this more often. But again, this is not a sermon about fasting. But let's talk about it for a second. What are we talking here in regards to uh, this fast that the disciples are doing? We're not talking about intermittent fasting. Maybe some of you guys have tried that before, right? It's kind of a health thing or a, a way to kind of uh, speed up your metabolism to get you in, into ketosis faster. And so it's the whole 16 uh, off, 8 on, trying to lose weight. So it's not intermittent fasting. We're not talking about fasting that you do before, you know, you go and do your labs at the doctor's office. That's not the fasting we're talking about. Biblical fasting is different. And, and I have a, a definition for you if you're interested. I think biblical fasting is about this, willing abstinence of food for a spiritual purpose. Okay, so willing abstinence of food for a spiritual purpose. Sometimes there are physical uh, results or fruit of that spiritual fasting, but that is the that is the idea and the heart behind biblical fasting is that there's a spiritual purpose. Now, the historical view on fasting, again, some context here for the disciples. Why would you do this? <laughs> As somebody who loves food, it's like, why would you stop eating food, right? Like, that's just silly to me. Oh, what's the motivation behind it? Well, there's a couple of things and a couple of reasons why John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples would feel so passionate about fasting. Well, it's because... As you, as you look at your Old Testament, God commands it very clearly that his people ought to fast. In fact, he says it in a way that assumes that they do fast. Uh, Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, in a way to prepare yourself to be in God's presence, the people of Israel are called to fast as a preparation, as a way for us to say, I'm going to be in the presence of somebody who is so much holier than myself. I need to, I need to fast in preparation for that. So preparation is one reason. Another reason would be response of sorrow or grief. Sometimes people would just fast because they were struck by something that happened that was so tragic, that was so terrible. They would tear their clothes, they would put ashes on their head, and they would fast for, for many days. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. Judges 20 is a civil war where nearly 40,000 Israelites die in this battle. And and, and the result of the battle is just so terrible, so horrific, that many in the nation call for a fast in Judges 20. First Samuel 31, you know perhaps about the first king of Israel. His name was Saul. 
and he had a very, very checkered career as a king, right? So King Saul, uh, he dies, and David and his men, King David and his men mourn, and they fast as a result of that sorrow and grief. Jonah 3, Jonah shows up. As you know, that story of Jonah and the whale, Jonah shows up to the people of Nineveh after running away from God, after doing all the things that he wasn't supposed to do. And he shows up to Nineveh and he preaches perhaps what's the shortest sermon ever. Right. And he says, repent or actually, no, not even repent. Like God is going to ruin you and you're done. That's what he says, basically. And the king of Nineveh calls for a fast to perhaps turn God's heart. And, and show that they are serious about their remorse and their sin. And so there are lots of reasons why you would fast. It's not just simply to get closer to the Lord in a personal way. It's a response that was understood all throughout the Old Testament. So I, I say this because this speaks to the motivations of the Pharisees. This speaks to the motivations of John the Baptist's disciples. I mentioned this last week, but the Pharisees are trying to accomplish a lot of things. They are very... Uh, they have a lot of ambition, right? They have a lot of things that they want to do. Uh, last week I called them separatists, meaning that they wanted to be holy. They wanted to be set apart. They wanted to make the law so hard and so difficult that it would have been impossible for anybody to follow the law. That's what really got them excited. They were also part of something called a restoration movement, meaning that they saw Israel as, as being uh, – they, they wanted to see Israel come back to its former glory. And they were excited about this idea. They were hoping and they were praying. And part of their, their hope of restoration was found in this practice of fasting. And so that God would return and fulfill and fulfill all the promises and, and really establish his kingdom on earth. And so they were highly committed to this fasting. In fact, Luke 18, verse 12, uh, Jesus in that gospel talks about how there's a Pharisee who is boasting Hey, I, I fast. I do my deal. I, I fast twice a week, every Monday, every Thursday. Now, to be fair to the Pharisees, because I honestly, whenever we kind of talk about Gospels, I think the Pharisees, they get, I don't want to say a bad rap because they deserve it, but there is an element of using them as kind of a straw man constantly, of like constantly looking at them and saying, we would never do it that way. By the way, we would all do it that way, right? We are all Pharisees in our heart. That's who we are. So when we call them out, we are calling out ourselves. And so these Pharisees, I mean, to be fair, they thought God would take them more seriously if they were pious, if they were holy, and if they fasted. And so that was their motivation. Now, John's disciples, on the other hand, they practiced the same fasting as the Pharisees, but they did so for a different motivation. John, I mean, Mark doesn't provide the details exactly, but one of the things that we can kind of pull from the, the text is if you recall Mark chapter 1, we, we spent the first week talking about how John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ. And John the Baptist has a clear understanding of who Jesus is and who he is, is not. Uh, John the Baptist is not. And he's like, look, like he must increase, I must decrease. John had this humble posture about himself that was, was accurate and was good and was, was, was right. And so as we think about John the Baptist and his disciples, John is portrayed as a man who understands the mission of Christ. And so it's very likely that while John the Baptist is also fasting, his disciples are fasting just the same way that the religious elites are, he's fasting more out of a, a purity of heart. That's what I would assume. It's not specifically in the text, but there is a sense that the disciples 
understood uh, these traditions and that they would they would do this in a way to to make the Lord pleased. And so they were humble about that. Lord, we're so hungry for you to work in our world. Uh, we can't do a single thing without you, Lord. Would you move? And so just as an aside, as we think about John the Baptist and his disciples fasting, this is probably more of our posture that we are called to fast instead. Okay, so we spent a lot of time there. I want to move on. But there is a question about a lack of fasting. So these disciples are confused, right? They're like, okay, Jesus, you're a big deal. Everybody is coming to town to see you. You are incredibly popular. You, you know all the law. You're, you're an incredible teacher. Why don't you do this thing that clearly you're supposed to be doing? You're supposed to be fasting. You're supposed to be just like the rest of us. And they notice they don't fast. And fasting was pretty common for spiritual people. And so they come to Christ and they ask, actually, they come to the disciples, they ask them, hey, we fast, but your guys don't fast. Why is that? So as I mentioned, fasting is what initiates this conversation. In some ways, I kind of want to hand this off now to the next part of our passage, because this is really not about fasting. Fasting can be swapped out for any example in the law about, hey, why don't you follow the law exactly the way you're supposed to follow it? So in other words, I don't want you to walk out from here saying, I need to fast more often. Maybe the Lord would do that for you and say, hey, you should fast. That should be a part of your spiritual discipline. But that is not this passage's point. This passage has to do with setting up how the law was practiced, how it was seen. And overall, fasting sets up God to make it clear to, these, to those listening of what he intends to accomplish through his son instead of just through fasting. So. Question number two that I want to answer this morning is, how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond? Sorry. That's okay. How does Jesus respond? So Jesus responds here in Mark 2 with three mini parables, three small parables. Parables are pretty common uh, responses from Jesus. We see that he, he talks in parables often, and so it's actually quite infuriating. If you've ever read the Bible and you're like, why don't you just answer the question, Jesus, right? Like, why do you have to always talk in these riddles and questions? And imagine there's a man walking down the road. It's like, can you just give me the answer, right? And so in, in some sense, he does this on purpose, though, because when Jesus responds in parables, he is inviting people to think deeply. And he's saying, look, I don't want to just give you the answer because there's actually some people who need to arrive to the answer in a different way. And so I'm going to tell the story. And maybe you need to even walk away from here and pray about what you've heard and think about, am I that guy in the story or am I that guy in the story? And so parables invite people to consider spiritual truths by thinking about something that's normal, something that's a part of everyday life. And so, again, they ask, why don't you guys fast like we do? Look at 19 and 20. 19 says this, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus, what he does is he points to the example of a wedding. Weddings can be fun, right? How many of you guys like weddings? Raise your hands. About two-thirds of the group here. Okay, so... Weddings are supposed to be fun, okay? They're supposed to be fun, right? So uh, they're, supposed, they're supposed to be joyful occasions because really if you think about a wedding, there's something for everybody at a wedding. There, there really is. The, 
uh, first of all, there's people, right? And some of you maybe don't like people, but most of us should like people, right? And like, and people can be a mixed bag and family and friends. And it's like, I haven't seen this person in a long time. The last time I did that, he said something weird to me. And so I can see that person again, but there's, there is an element of like, people should be fun to interact with and family and friends we haven't seen in a long time. There are the vows of a wedding. And everybody gets, you know, emotional and sentimental about the vows. And it's like, and sometimes people write their own vows and that's cute. And there's, there's elements of, about the vows that make people kind of tear up a little bit. Some of you enjoy to get dressed up. Like that's a fun thing to get dressed up and, and not kind of wear the same thing you do every, every day. There's free food usually and drinks, right? Like that's, that's fun, right? There's people who are, are eating and enjoying life around tables. There's dancing. Right? How many of you guys like to dance? Anybody? About half the group, maybe. I don't know. So um, I, we were just talking to a couple about this, but like basically, whenever I go to a wedding, I I don't know when this, this started, but like Katie loves to dance, and I'm like, I, I guess I just stopped doing that at some point, and so I'm like, because I'm like, do adult men dance? Like I don't think that's like something we should do, right? And so usually she gets one slow dance out of me, and that's it, right? Like I'm just gonna sit there at the table. So maybe you can relate to that. But there's supposed to be something for everybody at a wedding. A wedding is supposed to be this joyful, awesome, super fun event, celebration, bringing people together. Now, our wedding was a lot of fun. We had a big wedding. We actually had two receptions in the same day, uh, two different groups of people even. It was a, a big deal. Hundreds of people were there. It was, it was a fun day. But that doesn't compare to what a Jewish wedding would have been. And so when Jesus talks about um, hey, a, a wedding scenario, a Jewish wedding would not have lasted just one day. It would have been a whole week, at least, of, of excitement and fun and parties and celebrations and, and dancing and all these things. And so, in other words, when Jesus says in verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, what he's saying is this. He's saying you can't go to a wedding and sit back and cry and be sad. That's not what weddings are for. And, and if, if you feel that way, you shouldn't go to the wedding because that's we don't want people like that at the wedding, right? And we kind of know this intuitively, right? Like wedding parties are supposed to be fun. And so he brings us up in verse 19, and he says, On his wedding day, the groom and bride, they're about to get married, and they get ready for the wedding feast, and everyone there happens to be fasting. What? Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. Like, if if, if everybody's excited and ready to party, and there's a whole group of people who are are, I'm not going to eat today. Well, that is bad timing. Like, that, this is not good. We should have planned this better, right? This would have been totally backwards. It was totally mismatched because the guests are there. Their sole reason of being there is to celebrate. That's the whole point, to eat the expensive food, to dance with the wedding party. And so it would be a little bit like me inviting somebody from out of town. In fact, I just did this uh, three weeks back. We had Johnny Pollock from Ireland here. And our family had just a, gr a great time just hosting that, hosting him and, and just showing some restaurants or just kind of driving around the L.A. area a little bit. And it would have been crazy if I had said, like, hey, by the way, just pick him up at the airport. Like, I'm kind of I'm not eating at all for the next three days. Okay, like... That's fine, I guess. Like, that would have been such a bummer, right? Like, the fact that I have this out-of-town friend, and in fact, actually, the opposite happened. I, I was on WhatsApp with them, and I texted them a picture of a, a Taco Bell Mexican pizza. And I was like, hey, we have to try this when we get here, okay? 
And that's what we have to do. That's like goal number one. I don't care if you make it to the sermon to preach on time. We have to have Mexican pizza for Taco Bell. And, and, and that's the thing. You get excited about when people are around. And so in the same way, what Jesus is saying in verse 19 is he's comparing himself to the groom. And he's saying that he is the special and long-awaited guest. He's the guy from out of town. And as long as he's here at this time doing his earthly ministry, his disciples' fasting would be inappropriate. That's a little bit of what's behind this example of the wedding. And it's important to understand that, that Christ is not anti-fasting. We, we already know this from walking through Mark. He actually knows that fasting makes sense and is required and is necessary at certain times. We already know that he fasted in the desert. He fasted the night before his crucifixion. In fact, Robert Stein, a commentator, says this, In times marked by death, sin, and alienation from God, it doesn't only make sense to fast. Those things require fasting. But Jesus also knew that he'd come to change all that to, to take the brokenness of the world and to usher in a totally new set of circumstances. Again, this idea of change, this idea of a new way. So Christ wasn't against fasting. He just knew there was a time and place for it. I hope you understand as you read your Bibles that the arrival of Jesus is is a big deal. It's It changes everything. Everything that was true before gets turned on its head when Christ comes. He comes to bring in a new kingdom and a new way. Everything would be reversed. Everything would be fulfilled. Sorrow turns to joy, and God would restore everything that is broken through the person of Jesus. And he says, I'm the groom in the story. I'm I'm the guy who you should rejoice the fact that I'm here. Is this a time to fast? No. It's a time to party. This should elicit joy in our hearts. And because verse 20 also says the groom will not always be here. Jesus alludes to the end. And he says, then you can fast. Then you can weep and, and mourn. And I can't help but think of kind of how we as Christians uh, view Good Friday. Like there's this bitter sweetness uh, when Christ leaves, right? And so as we think about the next 12 chapters of Mark, I hope that you understand that this, this is a joyful time, that Christ is present. He's doing ministry. He's, he's healing people and bringing good news to those who are lost. So that's the first kind of mini parable. The second two are a little bit faster. So let's read through 21 and 22 as we see the torn garment and these new wineskins. And these have to do with the same thing here, okay? Verse 21, no one, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts in the new wine an old wineskin, into old wineskins. If he does... Uh, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. So this concludes kind of that passage. But these two other examples further demonstrate the idea behind it is that a new way, a new change is coming. And, and if they continue to do the things the old way, it's not going to work for them. That's the... That's the idea there. So right into it. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. Otherwise, what happens, and those of you guys who are sewers, or maybe you, you can understand what happens if you have one kind of shrunk or, or non-shrunken piece of fabric that gets sewed to one that already is, it's going to tear the seams. 
right? And so the patch pulls away from it. And, and the same way, no one puts in a new wine old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost. Now, maybe you don't have experience with these things. Honestly, that doesn't really matter because the people listening do. They understand what Jesus is talking about. They understand this is a part of their kind of natural way of life. And this is what's so great about parables. Jesus takes kind of what's really top shelf and he says, look, I'm going to explain it to you in a way that makes sense for you. And he says, you all know, you've all patched up a hole before in your, in your clothes. You've all uh, gone through the process of putting old wine into new wine skins. So let me explain what they're getting at first. Jesus is saying that there's, there's an old way to relate to God. And that must now change. So, so both parables talk about this, right? This collision of two different things. One is old, used up, and worn out. And one is new. And when these two things come together, it can cause big problems. So the worn out gar garments, some of you maybe have worn out garments at home, right? Some of you have maybe a, a favorite college sweatshirt or a, a pair of jeans that you just can't throw away, right? And uh, it's sentimental. Maybe it's from a loved one. I have these these jeans at home that are, are reprehensible. They're like they have holes in them everywhere, and I just keep on like patching them. There's just like I don't know why I do this, but I do. And so the jeans are like the old thing. And if I sew on new patches, these patches are the new thing. And the problem is you can make things worse, right? Because if you patch up the old hole with new fabric and throw it in the wash. The, the seams will be drawn into itself and shrink the fabric and tear even a larger hole. Maybe this has happened to some of you guys before. And so the, the wineskins are kind of the same idea. Maybe we don't have the same experience with the wineskins, but it's basically very similar. So winemaking, and I'm going to probably butcher this, but from what I understand, when you squeeze out those grapes in a press, and you're supposed to ferment this, this juice that comes out, and over time... That fermentation process happens, it does its job, and the juice turns into wine, into alcohol. And a byproduct of that happening is there's this gas that builds up. And so Jesus brings this up because he says, look, wine skins are supposed to be single use. So you don't, it's a new wine into new skin. But if somebody were to accidentally put new wine into old skin, it would be bad because the wine skin has already expanded, so it burst even further and all the wine would be lost and along with that skin as well. So hopefully you understand these kind of ideas. They're, they're, they're different, but they're the same. They're pointing to the same idea. So what is the point, though, to all of these parables? Well, I've been talking about it already. But it's important that we understand how Christ responds here. Because you can almost imagine everybody sitting there, like, nodding their heads yes, right? Like, some of you who are teachers have kids like this, right? And just, like, they're like, uh-huh. It's like, but do you actually understand what I'm saying? Like, really? Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me help us understand one more time. What he came to do, what Christ came to do was so radical that the well-worn religious practices that were useful and necessary in their own time were going to be replaced by new practices put in place by Christ himself. That's as plain as I can state it. That's what he was he was up to in in explaining these parables and so again the example of of, of fasting right it's it's like okay there's you do things an, an old way because you're used to that tradition but there's a new way to do that and so in, an, in a world marked by sin and death and exile along and fasting makes sense but christ has come like he's standing right in front of them 
He's making all things new. And so while these guys are excited about their fasting, Jesus isn't proud of their fasting. He doesn't give them a gold star and say, I'm so proud of what you guys do on Mondays and Thursdays. He's saying what you're doing is inappropriate and unseem, unseemly. Don't you know that I'm here? And it's time to party. So let's make some changes because there's a new way coming. Now, the last question I want to answer with our time this morning is this. Is it's a matter of application. Why does this matter to us? Well, what does this have anything to do with, with us? How is this relevant to you and I this morning? Well, one of the ways that it's relevant is because oftentimes maybe you're like me and I try and make Jesus conform to my expectations of what he, he should be doing. And so I have this picture of who God is in my mind. And, and sometimes I get confused or frustrated when, when that picture of God doesn't match up with God actually does in, in real life. Like, have you ever been guilty of that before? Like, have you ever, like, prayed, God, I, I have a wonderful plan for my life, Lord. Uh, please bless it and, and, and make it happen. Like, that's, that's a little bit of what these leaders wanted in Mark 2. They wanted him to conform to their expectations. And instead, Christ extends an invitation to a new way. And I mentioned this at the beginning, but Jesus never changes. Hebrews 13, 8 says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that matters to us because Jesus is working in the same way right now. He's doing the same work right now in our hearts. He doesn't just want you to live your old life and your old way of living in a little bit better of a way. He's not just here to put a new patch on an old pair of jeans. He has come to replace your whole old life with an entirely new one. And that's what he does. In fact, we see this over and over throughout scripture. In Mark 1.27, you recall from a couple weeks back, Jesus is in the synagogue at Capernaum, and he teaches the people, and the people literally say, what is this? What are you saying right now? Because this teaching is completely different than what we've heard before. And by the way, you're teaching uh, like, like one who has authority. And he's come to do new things. If you haven't read the Sermon on the Mount before, I encourage you guys to, to read that in Matthew 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount is perhaps uh, Christ's most well-known and well-loved sermon. And he consistently, over and over again, he offers up the most radical and direct teaching of what new life looks like. And he oftentimes does it in a way where he says, hey, you've heard it said this way. Well, I say this. And I... I up the ante a bit. And so he's like, hey, you, you've heard it said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Enemies, But I say that's not enough. I say you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the new way that Jesus consistently does. Luke 22, Jesus gathers up his disciples in an upper room. And they're celebrating something called the Passover. And this is foundational to who God's people were in the Old Testament. This was rich and full of meaning. And he takes these, these well-known symbols of the Passover, and he brings new meaning to them. And he takes the unleavened bread, made traditional with no yeast, and he says, this is my body, broken for you. This is no longer, this no longer symbolizes what you thought it used to symbolize. I'm going to bring new meaning to it. And he takes the last cup after the meal, the cup that's poured out for you, and he says, this is, this is my blood that was shed for you. And he brings new meaning to it. The last 
bit of newness that I want to point you guys to is actually found in Hebrews 8. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Hebrews 8 just for a minute. I think it's worth just turning it together so we read this out loud. And what we see in Hebrews 8 is something referred to as the new covenant. It's a, it's a new way of relating to who God is. Hebrews 8, the New Testament, and verse 7. It says this, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he who finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Let me just stop there for a second. Think about how radical that is. Like, like the law of God, his own thoughts, his own desire for how holy people ought to live. It's not just something that's written down in a special room to go and visit once in a while. Like he's going to write the law on their minds and their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the new way that Jesus brings. And I just want to say this morning that it's not just for his disciples and the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees and the disciples of the Pharisees. This new way is for you and I. And it's for today. It's for right in this moment. Because our greatest problem is we have bought the lie that we can affect spiritual change in our own heart. Like we can just kind of improve as time goes on. If we read the right books and if we kind of do the right meditations or our prayer life is a certain way. But the Bible says clearly that we can't do a single thing on our own. That we were dead in our sinfulness. And so if we are fasting twice a week, hoping to get attention from God, hoping he sees our righteousness, he will you will labor in vain. But the good news for us is that Christ came. He came into a broken world marked by sorrow and grief and sin and, and death. And he said, I'm going to do something new, not only in you personally, but for the whole world. I'm going to restore the whole world. And no matter what you've done, no matter how badly you and I screw up our lives, no matter how much you bought into this lie of, of self-righteousness, I'm doing something new in you. And then Jesus turns around and he himself lives a sinless life. And he dies a death on the cross that we should have died instead of him. And he says, whoever will trust in me for your righteousness will now have a relationship with my, with my heavenly father. And the Bible says that anybody who calls on him can be saved. That's what the Bible teaches. And so this morning, again, why does this matter? Why, did this, why does this conversation between Jesus and these disciples about fasting and about these, these parables about you know, the, the, the cloth and the wineskins. It matters because this morning he wants to do that for every single one of us. He wants to provide for you and I a new way. 
you know, maybe you've been where I've been and you look at your life and you look at your relationships and, and your private thoughts that you know nobody knows but you, and you just assume that you will always be the way that you are. And that, you know, no, no matter how hard we try, we can't just change things. And, and, and look, real change, deep change is actually possible. And while you may kind of work at it on your own, it's never going to actually happen unless you surrender your life over to Christ. He's the one who does that fundamental work. And so God is not interested in upgrading your old, worn-out life. He doesn't do the whole like home makeover thing where he sends you away to Hawaii or something and takes three days and 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 you know turns your den into a cool game room. Like that's not what God does. Move that bus, remember that old show, right? No, he wants to tear your house down. And he wants to build a, a new one for you from the ground up. And he offers to to buy the materials and relay the foundation and completely change everything that you thought. Uh, was true about that home you lived in. And so are you open to experiencing that type of newness this morning, that type of change? And if you are, Christ said that I'm, I'm here to accomplish that on your behalf, to take what's old and make it new. Let's pray to that end this morning.